Well, good morning. Has anybody here ever seen the kids' movie from Disney called Moana? We were watching it um, probably like three weeks ago, and I thought, there is a great sermon here. I promise. <laughs> um, it's got incredibly catchy music by Lynn manuel Miranda, some surprisingly good voice acting from Dwayne The Rock Johnson, um, and generally speaking, here's the plot. An entire group of people are set living in their ways with seemingly no problems until an unlikely hero, a child in this case, suspects there has to be more than this, only to be unexpectedly thrust into a leadership position and uncover a secret identity the people used to have. This sparks the idea within the child that the only thing to do is to get back to the true identity and the heart of the people, no matter the cost. As it turns out, there was actually a prophecy that said that Someday, someone was going to do just this very thing. And through that bravery, and despite numerous obstacles, the group returns to the way it was supposed to have been all along. Now, also in the story of Moana, there's like a funny chicken and a magic trip across the ocean. Um, but if you remove those things, like that's the basic gist. And did you know that that story, that plot, is actually the story of an ancient Israelite king. Josiah. Like, that is the story of Josiah almost verbatim. It was kind of painful to watch the movie and not be like, now Ellis, you don't really understand this, but this is actually about, <laughs> right? Like, an entire group of people are living set in their ways with seemingly no problems until an unlikely hero, a child in this case, says there has to be more than this and is unexpectedly pushed into a leadership position. He uncovers the secret identity of the people that they used to have and the child realizes the only thing we have to do is to get back to the way things were supposed to be. Uh, it was prophesied that there was going to be somebody who was going to do this and through bravery and facing obstacles, the people are able to return to that identity. That is the story of Josiah. And today we're going to examine the background and life story and lessons of Josiah. He stands out uh, in the verse that John just read for us pretty singularly amongst all the kings of Israel and Judah. If the Bible talks about somebody in this way, that never before him or after him was there somebody who did what he did and turned to the Lord with a heart this fully, then that is worth looking into and learning from. So what we're going to talk about today is revival from an unlikely hero, what Moana and Josiah and Jesus have in common, and why it matters. But in order for us to actually talk about Josiah, we need to understand like the backstory of how he got to be king. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings 
chapter 21. 2 Kings chapter 21, uh, the first six verses or so, um, tells this account of Josiah's grandpa, Manasseh. Now, Manasseh is known of being like one of the worst kings ever of the nation. He did more wicked things than anybody, and it eventually gets to the point where 2 Kings 21 tells us that the people did more evil than, in verse 2, um, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord had drove out before the people of Israel. And we, we skip to verse 9. Um, talking about the people didn't listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So Manasseh is a pretty like steadfastly wicked king. If you read some of the details of the things that he did, he set up idols and high places to worship false gods, but as if like that wasn't enough of an attack on God directly, he also set up some of those things like in the temple. He desecrated the temple and he put idol worship in the, the house of God. It's tough to read, but he like went so far in this. Verse 6, he burned his son as an offering to a false god. So we see someone so depraved and so lost in darkness that he's willing to offer child sacrifice to a false god. So things are pretty bleak, and the nation reflects that leadership. Now, 2 Kings effectively ends the narrative of Manasseh with him dying, and we don't read anything about him repenting or turning, but First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles are like parallel accounts of the kings of Israel and Judah. And while we don't read about it in 2 Kings, we do read about it in 2 Chronicles that Manasseh actually repented. In 2 Chronicles 33, we read that Manasseh finally understands that God is king and it leads the people, uh, he leads the people in throwing out the idols from the city. He reinstitutes proper worship and gets them like recommitted to serving God. And there's probably like an entirely different and extra wonderful sermon about the repentance of Manasseh and how it's never too late to repent and how God doesn't write off people that we would write off. But all of that wickedness that he had led the people into had effectively created a judgment from God saying, hey, the nation is going to be destroyed. And so even though Manasseh repents, um, we see that his legacy is passed on to his son. And unfortunately, despite his best efforts at like turning the ship around, the majority of his life left such a strong blueprint that when Manasseh dies and his son Ammon becomes king, Ammon has the perfect blueprint for idolatry. So all of the work that Manasseh tried to do at the end of his life to turn the people back to God just went out the door. If you read in 2 Kings 21 in verse 19, Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulamith, 
the daughter of Haruz of Jotba. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. He walked in all the way in which his father walked, and served the idols that his father served and worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. And the servants of Ammon conspired against him and put the king to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. So in these parallel accounts where we've we read of Manasseh turning and repenting. Second um, Chronicles 33 tells us specifically that Ammon didn't humble himself like Manasseh did. He chose instead to go outside the city where Manasseh had taken all of the idols and all of the false gods and pull those back into the city. So generations of people who had spent most of their lives worshiping idols only to then briefly come back to God are now like, firmly back entrenched in idol worship. And during Ammon's reign, it probably would have been really easy to misunderstand the identity of who the people of Israel and Judah were actually supposed to be. They wouldn't have looked like the people of God. They certainly didn't act like the people of God. And if anything, they looked worse and acted worse than the surrounding nations who had been destroyed in the first place. So Ammon was 22 when he began to reign, and he was murdered after two years of being king. 2 Kings chapter 22 tells us that Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. So Josiah enters the scene. He's eight. That is Declan Tesh. Declan Tesh is eight years old until February. So imagine Declan as a sovereign king over a nation. And you start to get the picture that like, oh man, that is a wild situation. Especially after having your parent just like exit very unceremoniously from the, uh, from the throne. This is somebody who is prematurely and tragically unexpectedly thrust into the spotlight. And we have to understand like how he would have grown up. So the phrase like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, well okay if Josiah is the apple, who is the tree? Oh wait, it's Ammon and Ammon is a bad, bad dude. So think of the family dinner conversations that you would overhear when you're sitting with Ammon. Think of the surrounding friends of the family that would have been involved, like the yes men and the yes women that would have jumped immediately into idol worship with Ammon. Think of how awful that this guy had to have been for his own servants to conspire to murder him. That guy's son is now leading the country. Or at least he's leading it like as much as an eight-year-old can, It's likely that in the first several years of his reign, he would have had some political advisors and some parental advisors and some practical advisors, people to help shape him as he develops. But those legacy pieces would have been Ammon's legacy pieces. 
In other words, idolaters and wicked people. So Josiah would have had his grandpa Manasseh in his life up until he was six. And potentially at this point, like Manasseh has seen the light. He knows that he needs to turn back to God. And it is likely that he would have done everything he possibly could to talk to his grandson about the importance of coming to God. So maybe he's planting little seeds, but that voice is a minority. Okay, the overwhelming status quo for Josiah is idol worship. Not just in the palace, but the entire kingdom and all of the people. He's isolated and too young to likely have any direct influence to change it, like even if he knew that that was something he wanted to do. Um, And the advisors who would have been surrounding him at eight years old probably have their own political agendas, right? Like they are like, hey, this is maybe an opportunity for me to slide into power or advance the things that I think about and care about because this is just a kid. Do you think it's possible that in this period of time, that Josiah would have engaged in idol worship? I think it's highly likely. This is what his family has known. This is what the culture has known. This is what's expected of him. He's leading the people in this way. But we read something really interesting about this young man. If you flip over to Second Chronicles, We'll spend the rest of our time there instead of in 2 Kings. 2 Chronicles chapter 34. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. So we read that these first few years, he's just developing. He's going from 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. But now, at 16, in the eighth year of his reign, he decides, I want to seek God. So we've moved on from Declan, and now we're at like Crash Reese right? Think of a 16-year-old. And now he is deciding, I want to serve God. But here's a question. How did Josiah even know about God? Like maybe his grandpa had said some stuff to him, but we know at this point that he didn't have a copy of God's law. Did he think that maybe after seeing what happened to his dad, hey, that's a path that I don't want to go down, so maybe I need to be a little bit more uh, intentional or maybe I need to switch things up, potentially. But I think these verses show us the breadcrumbs for how he knew about God. Did you see where it says that in verse 2, he walked in the ways of David, his father, and in verse 3, he began to seek the God of David, his father? Even though Josiah wouldn't have had a record of the law, I think it's entirely likely that he would have had some sort of record of who the other kings were. So he would have known about David. He would have heard about David. And he identified with David as his father more than Ammon. He said, this is like my great, 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 great grandpa. 
but the way that he lives his life, that's my father a lot more than Ammon is my father. And his God, that's going to be my God. So he clung to that history. Um, and maybe in these first few years, maybe Josiah is pouring over these records of the kings and he's asking questions of the faithful remnant that he can find and he's looking for God anywhere he can. So we've hit Manasseh's legacy, Ammon's legacy, the status quo of idol worship, Josiah's decision now to pursue God, and we see that that evolves, uh, picking back up in verse 3. So in the eighth year of his reign, when he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father, and in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, the carved and the metal images, and they chopped down the altars of the bales in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the asherim and the carved and the metal images, and he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on the altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in all the surrounding cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon and as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and their images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. So now in the 12th year of his reign, he's 20. And his um, interest in God, his decision to seek God has developed far beyond like a curiosity or an interest, and now is a full-fledged action plan, and he is committed and passionate. He was right in the thick of it, overseeing all of the action. It took six years for him to purge the entire nation of idolatry, and I think that shows us like how deep this corruption went. Picture in your mind for a second. This is a 20-year-old changing the culture of his entire nation. Can you see him in the thick of this action? Can you see him directing his servants? Like, do you see that little one over there, that little idol by the tree? Make sure you don't miss that. Destroy everything, even the little ones. No, don't save that idol. I don't care if it's gold. It has to go. Listen, you've got to break this one into little itty-bitty pieces. You have to destroy it. Make it powder or they're going to rebuild it. Which, by the way, like how do you take a statue of gold or of iron and crush it into powder? I don't know the answer to that. I'm just going to say not easily, <laughs> right? Like that shows the level of dedication that he had to get rid of all of this stuff. And Josiah taking these actions would have likely had some social costs attached to it. The advisors who had been maybe entertaining him from a distance, who had been legacy pieces, who had said, hey, you know, yeah, Josiah, like, you can go kind of seek God and everything, but, like, don't mess with our idols. You're now saying, hey, you are disrupting our entire way of life. This thing has gone back generations, and you are violently coming in and destroying them. He's not just removing false gods from the people like his grandpa did and moving them outside the city. He is completely destroying them. It's also important to note in the plot line, we talked about how there was a prophecy about 
Josiah. That is referenced back in 1 Kings chapter 13 in the time of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the first king of Israel after Israel and Judah split into separate nations. And Jeroboam set up like a high place, a false place of worship at Bethel. And so it was still worship directed towards God, but it was in an unauthorized way. And a man of God came up to Bethel and talked to Jeroboam and said, hey, one day there's going to be a guy named Josiah, and he's going to be born in the lineage of David, and he is going to tear down this altar, and he's going to burn the bones of the priests who, who worship here. Which to Jeroboam is like a pretty big insult. He's like, I like my new altar. What are you talking about? Like you're, you know, some guy's going to tear it down. But 300 years prior, this was prophesied, and then Josiah is living this out. And Josiah may not have had any direct like knowledge that he was supposed to do that. That's just what he did. Okay, so that is Josiah's purge of the nation. The last two points in the narrative of Josiah that we'll talk about are when he discovers the law and then his commitment afterwards. So when he was eight, he becomes king. Sixteen, he decides to pursue God. Twenty, he decides to go on this rampage of purging the nation of all of the false gods. Um, and then now, in the 18th year of his reign, when he's 26, I didn't have a good example of someone who's 20, but David Deloge is 26. So think about someone like that who's around that age now. When he had cleansed the land of all of the idols, he decides now the next evolution in this is for me to repurpose and rebuild the temple back to the way it was supposed to be. In doing that, he sets up the Levites and gets everybody doing the jobs that they originally and according to the law of God were supposed to be doing that culturally they hadn't been doing. And it's in this time when... uh, They are rebuilding the temple, and this had previously been a place that had housed false gods and idols, right? So they've taken all that out, and now they're looking at maybe like an empty space or a space with maybe some back rooms that have a lot of dust on it, like stuff that had been dedicated to God that hadn't really been used in a while. And Josiah says, hey, it's time for us to get this back to the way it needs to be, and spritz it up. Well, in that moment, One of Josiah's um, servants, the secretary, um, stumbles across and finds uh, the book of the law, or Hilkiah, sorry, the priest finds the book of the law of uh, of the Lord given from Moses in verse 14 of, of chapter 34. And so this guy Hilkiah tells Shapan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And he gives it to Shapan, and Shapan goes, and he doesn't even necessarily even really seem to understand like what this is. He goes before the king, and in verse 18, see if this is like the tone that maybe he would have said this with. Then Shapan the secretary told the king, uh, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. Like, that's not exactly the, I'm jumping up and down for joy. Like, we found God's word and law and what this means for all of our people. He's just like, hey, he found this dusty old book and he told me to give it to you and you want me to read it? And Josiah says, yeah, read it to me. Verse 19. And when the king 
heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. When Josiah, who already had a heart for God and decided he wanted to seek him, actually then understood the specifics of what serving God is supposed to be, when he realized just how far the nation had fallen and how much they had not kept the law, he has no other reaction than to be incredibly upset, so much so that he just rips his clothes. He tells his servants in verse 21 to go and inquire of the Lord for me and those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. So when he reads this and he says, this is not what I've been doing. This is not what my father has been doing. This is not what my grandpa has been doing. This is not what all of us as a people have been doing. He is distraught and he recognizes that like there's going to be consequences associated with not following God. In that inquiry of, hey, let's go and seek from the Lord, there's a prophetess named Huldah. For the sake of time, we won't read this whole section, but effectively she says, here's what God says back. And God says, hey, you're right. This refusal to serve God and abandoning what you were supposed to do means that the nation is going to be destroyed. But verse 26 is really interesting. 2 Chronicles 34, verse 26. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard His words against this place and against its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. And God goes on to tell him that although that destruction is coming, it's not going to happen in Josiah's lifetime that he's going to be spared from that. Our last bit in the story, and then we'll draw some parallels and some applications from it. Verses 29 through 33 tell us what Josiah does next. So if you're Josiah and you've been serving God or trying to or seeking Him since you were a boy, since you were 16, and then you recognize like, man, we have dropped the ball and we have not done this and there is judgment coming, it would be maybe pretty easy to give up or to want to give up or to say like, what is the point or how do I possibly get over the fact that we've fallen so woefully short but Josiah does the exact opposite. 2 Chronicles 34, 29. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem 
And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. So Josiah gets everybody together and in a version of something like this where you're reading from God's word, except it's the entire city of Jerusalem and everyone who lives there. And he's reading here and he's saying, this is everything that God has to say and I'm committing in front of everybody that I'm going to do it. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 32, Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in on it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. Do you see how that identity shifts back? It no longer becomes the God of David, but it's the God of their fathers, the God of them themselves. It becomes personal. They re-enter into this covenant. Josiah says, it's not enough for me to live this way. I want everyone to live this way. So his twofold commitment is, hey, we're going to make a covenant to God and we're going to live this way. And at the same time, we also have to get rid of anything that would stop us from doing that. So previously, he had done his six-year campaign to get rid of idol worship, but now he goes about into the entire like broader area. So he moves on from just the south, and he goes into the Midwest, and the, you know, the Northwest, and the Northeast, and like he goes to everywhere and says, hey, just like that. He's like, yeah, we got to get rid of it. And they stuck with it for all of his days. Now, there's some more details to the story that we just don't have time to talk about, like how he reinstitutes the Passover and he provides all of the lambs in order for that, that to happen, and how eventually, like, he meets a pretty untimely death when this guy who has been willing to listen to God his whole time doesn't listen to God. But that's the story of Josiah. But Josiah's story isn't just Josiah's story. It's also the story of Jesus. We see a ton of imagery of how Josiah is like Jesus in these ways. Josiah was prophesied about before his birth, just like Jesus. Josiah was godly from his youth, just like Jesus. He purged the land and the temple two times, just like Jesus purged the temple two times. He traveled all over Israel to turn the hearts of the people towards God. He built the house of God and revealed the word of God. He preached even knowing the judgments of God were coming. He brought the people into covenant with God. He prepared a great Passover and provided the lambs for sacrifice. And he died an untimely death at the hands 
of the Gentiles. So in light of all of those similarities, can you now see how this plot goes way beyond just a children's movie and way beyond just the story of an ancient Israelite king and is actually the story of Jesus? An entire group of people are living set in their ways with seemingly no problems. They're in sin and darkness, but they're blind to it. Until an unlikely hero, Jesus, God in the flesh, reveals there has to be and there is more than this. He uncovers, or excuse me, he's unexpectedly thrust into a leadership position of Savior of the world through uncovering the secret identity that the people used to have as children of God. And that's sparked from the idea within the hero that the only thing to do is to get back to the true identity and heart of the people, no matter the cost. And as it turns out, it was prophesied that somebody was going to come and be and do this exact thing. And through that bravery and numerous obstacles, the group returns to the way things were supposed to have been all along. Salvation for all people through Jesus. Once you get your arms around that story that like the unlikely hero who saves everybody and restores things to the way they're supposed to be is actually the story of Jesus and it's the story of humanity, you can't unsee that. And so then you start to see how all of the Bible is pointing towards this story and there's all of these different images and types of Christ and Josiah and David and Joseph and Moses and Abraham. All these people are telling the story of Jesus. And then eventually you get to the twisted point where you are watching a kid's movie with your son and you say, Moana is about Jesus. Not really, but kind of, right? Like this story, this theme of redemption, that's what that's actually about. So how is that relevant and what does that actually mean for us today? True revival comes from immersion in God's word. So Josiah had like wanted to seek God for a while, but it wasn't until he got immersed in God's word and in the law that then he led the revival that like transformed the entire nation. He was trying to serve God. He was doing some things that were right. He was getting rid of idols, but it wasn't until he was immersed in God's word that then it taught him how to obey, how to enter into a covenant, how to teach others. In that law that Josiah found, there's this um, specific section that was a requirement for all of the kings to write their own copy of the law and to be in it and to read it and to teach it to others and to live carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes in Deuteronomy 17. I think there is a 100% chance that when Josiah read the law, he was careful to obey it and that he wrote his own copy of the law. And that that is part of how he becomes so immersed in it, how he leads this revival so authentically, and it's a big part of why the people stay faithful all the days of his life. So for us, on a very practical level, we experience true revival when we are immersed into Jesus. And baptism is like an obvious metaphor for that. It's an obvious immersion into Jesus. But Jesus is 
the Word of God we read about in John. And when we are immersed in Him, in His life, in His death, in His blood, and His teachings, that's when we can experience true revival. Our next point, God's Word is a treasure, but it can be taken for granted and even lost. So eventually, the people of Israel went from receiving the law and living out their identity as God's people to losing all copies of the law, including this one that maybe like they didn't even know existed and it was just sitting in a dusty old corner in the back. We have access to God's word today, maybe more so than anybody who's ever existed. The proliferation of like literal physical Bibles and the access on your phone, it's there and it's a treasure and it can lead to revival, but we can take it for granted and we need to be careful that we don't. What a shame if we let our lives and our homes and our children grow up with dusty Bibles in a corner that people forget about. And finally, committing to obeying God like Josiah did means two things at the exact same time. It means making a total unswerving commitment to him and his word, while at the exact same time making a complete removal of anything that could get in the way of that. Do you have a nagging sense in your life that there has to be more than this? Are you open to the idea that your life has more significance and meaning and purpose than you ever expected? Jesus calls you into your true identity as a created child of God. He wants to restore what's missing in your life and save you and cleanse you from sin and the brokenness of this world and make you whole. And there is immeasurable hope and grace and meaning waiting for you if you're willing to believe in Him. And that starts by spending time in His Word and listening to Him. If you're already a believer, listen and learn from the story of Josiah. Double down on your commitment to him to serve him with all your might and all your soul and all your strength. Remove anything and everything from your heart that would get in the way and take that highest place where he belongs. The best way to do that is getting in the word. Consider what you're going to do with God's word in 2024 as we stand and sing.